I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A. We're taking a break for a few weeks in August, and we'd like to use this opportunity to introduce you to some of C-SPAN's other podcasts. Lectures in History is C-SPAN's most popular podcast. Each week, it takes listeners back to the classroom for master classes in American history and politics. This week, you'll hear from Brown University professor Megan Kate Nelson, who teaches a class about America's use of guerrilla warfare in the Civil War. Okay, so on April 16, 1865, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton wrote a letter to General Winfield Scott Hancock to tell him that the Virginia guerrilla leader John Singleton Mosby likely had some information about the assassination of President Lincoln. So Stanton warned Hancock, um, he wanted him, actually, to uh, contact Mosby, but he warned him. In holding an interview with Mosby, it may be needless to caution an old soldier like you to guard against surprise or danger to yourself. But the recent murders show such astounding wickedness that too much precaution cannot be taken. So apparently... John Singleton Mosby, Virginia guerrilla leader, was dangerous even in a face-to-face talk, right? That perhaps he would uh, launch a surprise attack on Hancock and take him prisoner. Um, So he needed to be warned. So clearly, uh, guerrilla leaders were in the minds of Union officials even after the war was over. Um, And for good reason. So guerrillas fought on both sides of the conflict. Uh, In multiple theaters during the Civil War, they used a variety of tactics against a multiplicity of foes. So what is guerrilla warfare exactly? So it's a style of what historians refer to as irregular warfare, as opposed to armies fighting in the field, um, going to battle against one another, like most of the battles we've been discussing this semester. Usually, guerrilla warfare um, involves a small group of combatants, 20 to 30 in some cases, up to 200 in other cases, of mounted men, um, so they're on horseback, striking a larger force at that larger force's sites of opportunity and vulnerability. So the end of a column, the outskirts of a camp, anywhere where these guys could have a quick raid um, and get in and out really quickly. Their actions uh, often erased the line between combatant and civilian. Usually they did not wear uniforms, so sometimes it was hard to tell uh, who they were. They also uh, erased the line between soldiers and outlaws, as you will see a couple of familiar names here, perhaps from Western histories of bank robbing rather than uh, civil war. Uh, histories. So, but guerrillas uh, could not win the war on their own, right? They didn't have the numbers. Um, It was often difficult to integrate them into larger armies, Um, but when they were really effective, they could harass the enemy to such an extent that they could shape campaigns. So this is their influence. Now, there were northern guerrilla bands, and there were unionist southern guerrilla bands. And in fact, there was a piece in the New York Times Disunion series just this week about fugitive slaves hiding out in the Great Dismal Swamp in Virginia who were engaging in guerrilla battles um, with white Confederate soldiers. Um, But because 
Guerrilla warfare usually developed on the home front under occupation or invasion. This meant that the majority of guerrilla fighters uh, were, in fact, white male Confederates. So here's a photograph of Mosby's Rangers. Clearly, they did not care so much about uh, being anonymous. Uh, Mosby is right here in the center. And these are all his guys gathered around him. As you see, they're not... They're wearing some military jackets, but uh, in various styles. So historians who work in this field have recently determined that there were, you know, there's not just one kind of guerrilla fighter. Um, There were, in fact, three different kinds of irregulars who fought during the Civil War. So the most kind of quote-unquote legitimate were referred to as partisan rangers, Um, These guys were expected to obey army regulations. They were expected to coordinate their movements with local military commanders. Usually they were cavalry units um, that engaged in raiding and property destruction. Um, The three sort of central partisan uh, leaders in this context were John Hunt Morgan and Nathan Bedford Forrest uh, and John Singleton Mosby. And I'll be talking um, especially a little bit more about Mosby here. Um, So the Confederate Congress uh, and the Confederate Army found great uh, use for these partisan rangers, so much so that they passed an act in April of 1862, the Partisan Ranger Act, which allowed Jefferson Davis to mobilize um, these guerrilla fighters, um, to muster them into the Confederate Army, which meant that they were paid, they got rations, and they got war material. So they got uniforms, they got shelter, um, and this legitimated them. This act also did something interesting, which uh, it established that partisan rangers would be paid for whatever booty they lifted um, from the enemy. So they would bring back, if they could bring back any material or horses or whatnot, um, then they could turn them into the quartermaster and be paid. So there's an incentive for you, right? Um, Partisans, though, uh, some groups got a little out of control, and some Confederate officials, including Robert E. Lee, complained about it to Jefferson Davis and to the congressmen, and so they repealed the Partisan Ranger Act um, in February of 1864. So sort of taking that legitimacy away. The one partisan man that did continue um, to act in Virginia was John Mosby's band. So here's a, uh, a photograph of him, and you see that he signed it. He sort of described what he is wearing um, at this moment uh, that his photograph has been taken and signed it as a kind of souvenir. He had been a cavalry officer serving with Jeb Stuart, but he formed a partisan band in January of 1863. And as Stanton's letter uh, really reveals to you, he became quite notorious. Um, He loved to execute raids on horseback, on wagon trains and supply depots. He was also quite fond of launching surprise attacks at night and capturing especially Union officers while they were sleeping. He liked to wake them up and inform them that they were now prisoners of the Confederate government. So um, Mosby, in fact, was so good at this and so good at eluding capture that he earned the nickname the Grey Ghost during the war. There were two other kinds of irregulars, um, guerrillas, just referred to generally, uh, who were 
individuals and small companies engaging in guerrilla activities unattached to local armies um, or pretty far afield so that they weren't actually operating where the Union Army was occupying space. Their principal responsibility was local defense, the protection of their families or communities against both internal and external foes. Um, They decided, guerrillas decided, where and when and how and against whom to fight. They were not coordinated with one another at all, acted independently. The third group uh, are referred to as bushwhackers. And these are the extremists, like Bloody Bill Anderson, uh, photographed right here on the right. These are the guys who engaged in violence for sport. Uh, They had no fealty to locality or to nation, no political intent or loyalties. Uh, They were the most gratuitously violent of all of the irregulars. They initiated cycles of revenge and retaliation wherever they went um, and really spread, they were the ones who spread the most panic and fear um, in the southern countryside um, among basically all civilians. Um, So in The Unvanquished, Grumby's independence are bushwhackers, right? Whereas John Sartoris, part guerrilla, part partisan ranger, right? So who were these guys? And what were they doing? So they were recruited from local populations, usually, by kin or neighbors. They operated in their own neighborhoods, which was an asset, right? Because as we've talked about before with Southerners on the home front, they could be close to their network of supporters. Um, They also knew the landscape quite well, and they used it to their advantage. Now, I think we have a vision, and especially if you've seen Ride with the Devil, I don't know if you have, but uh, that is the one uh, kind of recent guerrilla warfare movie. Uh, And and it depicts um, guerrilla fighters as quite young, sort of in their late teens and early 20s. Um, But historians have determined that guerrilla fighters really uh, came from the same age demographic as common Confederate soldiers. They were in their early 20s um, to early 30s. Some of them were poor laborers. Others were the sons of small slave owners, so um, farmers who owned between five and ten slaves. So they were members of a rural elite class, many of these guerrillas. So there was a lot of class variation. It was not just all um, poor young men. They saw themselves, uh, they identified as rural southern men, and they saw themselves as having the special qualities and skills that exemplified southern manhood, um, marksmanship, so they were good with guns, experience as woodsmen uh, and Indian fighters, so these sort of frontier battles. Um, They also uh, saw themselves as being very fit and rugged, You could sort of ride all night and all day and not have to sleep. Um, And uh, their horsemanship. So uh, being mounted on horses was key here for not only mobility, but also for their status as um, southern rural elites. Um, If you had a horse, that meant something. It meant that you were powerful and you uh, had enough money to have a horse. Um, So these were all the essential components of uh, rural southern manhood. Um, They also had a great, they developed this sense of honor uh, that 
if anybody insulted them or their families, they were going to respond, usually with some form of violence, um, or often with some form of violence. Uh, so these are all the um, qualities that are informing uh, their southern manhood and their guerrilla activities. They also had a strong interest in protecting the institution of slavery. They were all pretty much uh, pro-slavery advocates, the, the Confederate guerrillas. Um, the Unionists were somewhat different, and we'll talk about them in a second. But here you can see Jesse and Frank James, the brothers uh, who started out their careers as guerrilla fighters, uh, and then after the war moved west and became bank robbers. So how did they do this? Um, how did they sort of establish bands and, and gain some success in this context? Well, first, it was that good combination of speed and surprise, right? So this is what horses gave them and what small bands gave them, is that they can move very quickly through the landscape. Um, they would attack, wreak whatever havoc they could, melt back into the forest. Um, most gorillas were very difficult to identify because of this, because they would just sort of hit you and leave, often at night. Um, and there's, this is an interesting component of gorilla strategies, because invis invisibility, you would think, would be important, right? You don't want to get caught. You don't want to be identified. But then they had these leaders who had widespread fame and were notorious and often had um, bounties put on their heads, right? And those leaders cultivated this reputation because it was useful psychologically and because it helped them recruit people into their bands. So there's a real tension there between invisibility and visibility, Enemy supply trains were their favorite targets because they could get all manner of things uh, from those wagons. Uniforms um, they particularly enjoyed uh, because it was a trophy, um, especially if they took uniforms from men they killed. Um, but it was also useful as one of their tactics, right? Because they'd put on these Union uniforms and use deceit. They'd sort of pretend that they were Union soldiers, and then they would launch an attack from the inside. So that was very useful to them in these raids. Uh, they also uh, were happy to take uh, food and war any kind of war material they could find, clothing, tents, medical supplies. Uh, they also raided Union camps for horses because, again, this was their tool of the trade. This was their transportation. Um, and they often had horses shot out from under them, uh, so they needed to replenish their, their supply. And as I noted with Mosby, they liked taking prisoners, uh, especially high-ranking officers. So they would deliver uh, these Union soldiers to Confederate prisons. So these were their targets. They rarely endangered uh, organized body of troops, um, bodies of troops. They fired on pickets or lone patrols. They did not want to take on large armies in the field because they would lose, right? Um, so they kind of picked people off on the edges. Um, they also used, uh, interestingly, biological warfare, usually um, by throwing dead animals in water sources that were near Union camps. Because you take uh, water and food away from an army uh, and you debilitate it, right? Um, as you can imagine, psychological warfare was a very strong component of guerrilla activities. Um, 
Some guerrillas left, and these were mostly bushwhackers, left calling cards on bodies. They wrote notes uh, that mocked the dead or their relations. Also, some of them took trophies, um, cutting off body parts of the men they had killed uh, and riding away with them and showing them off. Um, Trophy-taking like that was a way to build community within a guerrilla band, um, but it was also a kind of material symbol of their success, right? Um, And it helped intimidate their enemies, um, both military and civilian. So why would they do this? Some of them were motivated by support of the Confederate cause. They wanted, you know, they sort of believed in what they were doing, and what they were doing was defending these higher values and ideals of the Confederacy. And ideals that they believed defined them as Southerners. Some of them were overtly uh, impelled to stop the Yankee invasion. There was a very defensive move um, that they would not ride out and try to attack any Union forces. They would just um, act defensively um, to stop uh, Yankee soldiers from operating in their vicinity. Again, male honor was one component of this, and this is where the cycle of guerrilla violence starts to move, right? Because uh, if a Union patrol injures a guerrilla's family member or friend, that guerrilla will take revenge, and it will start this whole cycle going. So their honor was very highly invested in martial courage and strength um, and integrity. Um, and if there was any slight to their reputation, um, men who were fully invested um, in their own honor would, again, act violently um, to shore it up. For many men, um, especially bushwhackers, engaging in guerrilla warfare was an opportunity uh, to make money through plunder or take revenge on people uh, who they had had, you know, sort of negative feelings about or anger even before uh, the war began. Some guerrillas felt the need to control slave populations, especially after January 1863, sort of news of emancipation filtered through the South, which is sort of um, clamping down on slave communities, and often guerrillas serve that purpose of being slave patrols. And then the extremists were motivated by bloodlust, right? I mean, there's always a certain percentage of people in the population um, who find great pleasure uh, in destruction and in murder, Um, and it's not surprising that some of them would sign up to fight in the Civil War, Uh, and that some of them would find guerrilla warfare uh, to be the perfect place in which to act out uh, their desires, right? But they cultivated, uh, guerrilla bands kind of cultivated this sense of uh, devil-may-care and this uh, sense of individuality and that this was fun, right? This was a fun thing to do, to go out and hunt Yankees. And I think you can see this in George Maddox's photograph here with his... um, his, just the way that he's sitting with the fabulous hat that he's got with all this decoration, and he's got this very elaborate shirt uh, and vest on underneath his coat. And he's wearing boots, of course, um, to signify that he's on horseback. And he's posing, and I don't know if you can see uh, the detail in this background, but he's posing in front of, this is like if you go to a, a photographic studio and there's a, um, a like 
the 19th century version of a blue screen uh, behind him. Uh, but this is a scene of the ruins of Greece, right? So he's like, this is his destruction. And he's sitting there proudly displaying both of his weapons here, um, right in front of this uh, scene of non-American destruction. So what kind of effects did they have? As I noted before, uh, guerrillas had some significant military effects, even though they couldn't actually defeat an army in the field. Uh, They did help uh, to harass and check invading armies and sort of uh, distract them from their purpose, which was usually occupation of a particular area. They often forced the reassignment of men and materiel to sort of deal with them, and so it took manpower away from the Union Army, which they considered to be very useful. Um, They also uh, stocked Confederate prisons with Union soldiers, and the reason this was useful is that they could exchange them for their own men. Um, But after, about the summer of 1863, prisoner exchanges stopped happening, and we're going to discuss why that occurred. Um, So there was just a buildup of these uh, Union prisoners um, that were brought in by guerrillas here. They also had pretty important psychological effects. They hurt the morale um, of the enemy, the enemy's army, um, and again, they spread panic um, both among the enemy's army and among civilians in the area, who may have been Unionist or Confederate. Now, they had some other effects that became a little bit more problematic for them. Um, They did manage to shield their own communities in some ways, um, but they also drew attention to those communities. Um, If you were going to try and attack a guerrilla leader, uh, you went to his supply base, which we will talk about in a second, which was usually his house. Um, So there are a lot of uh, burnings of suspected uh, guerrilla households during this period, um, which is, of course, unwanted attention. They did not mean for that to happen. Um, Guerrilla warfare also undermined military discipline and cohesion in some places, and this is why Robert E. Lee objected to them and sort of supported um, the repeal of the Partisan Ranger Act, as he saw it as very disruptive um, to have these partisans on the loose. Guerrilla actions also did a pretty good job of interrupting the supply line uh, for Union troops, but in doing so, they, uh, they interrupted their own supply line. Hold on for just one second. So when you cut a road or a railroad line, it also disrupts civilian trade networks, right? So you can't get your own material in. Uh, When you are trying to hurt the enemy, you actually hurt yourself. Um, And all of this violence um, created this really chaotic situation um, on the southern home front, and it uh, created refugee populations of white women, um, children, older men, and also slaves, right? Um, And historians have argued that guerrilla warfare did a very good job of prolonging the Civil War, which for guerrilla fighters was great, right? Their opportunities for plunder uh, just continued to go on and on. But for the vast majority of Americans who were really 
frustrated and horrified with the death toll, um, this was a huge problem. Um, so that came back uh, to haunt some guerrilla fighters. So guerrillas tended to fight in particular types of terrain. Um, usually uh, mountainous areas or otherwise difficult landscapes, swamp lands um, also in addition to mountains. Um, they did best in areas that had scattered settlements and poor roads because these kinds of landscapes impede a regular army, right? They slow them down. They funnel them into a narrow path, whereas small groups of mounted men can really work around that and ride through the forest in ways that a larger army cannot. Um, these sites of terrain also created really nice sites of ambush, right, where they could come out of the forest, raid, hit, uh, wreak their havoc, uh, and then retreat. So these were, they clustered around um, kind of sites of opportunity, river crossings, railroad junctions, any other kind of road junction where an army would have to slow down or a Union patrol um, might not know the way or have an unmapped area. And they really flourished, guerrilla warfare really flourished on the periphery of the Confederacy, um, where perhaps there was not a large um, occupying force, although perhaps a little bit of Union presence. Um, and they also, their, their actions on the periphery meant that they were kind of out of the, um, out from under um, the, the eye of the Confederate army. Um, and it was considered more acceptable uh, to do this in these places. So as in other regions, um, women in guerrilla areas and guerrilla landscapes were left to shoulder the burdens of both household and farm when their men were away in the bush, as historians uh, like to refer to it. They also participated pretty directly in guerrilla warfare efforts. And so this is what Leanne Weitz uh, is writing about in her article that you read for today, um, 40 Shirts and a Wagon Load of Wheat. Uh, so let's take a look at that article um, and talk about how this war in this context became a household war. So how did women participate as guerrillas? in especially this border region uh, that Leanne Weitz is talking about. Yeah, Steve. <laughs> well, they were the whole supply train for all the mills and the families that were fighting, and they got them food and clothes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And how did they do it? Didn't they just go into town and buy it, and some of it they made themselves? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so doing the things that women were expected to do, right? Go into town, buy cloth, buy food, take the wheat in to be ground. And this is how they supported their men, right? Now, why has women's kind of very direct participation in this context been kind of erased from Civil War memory. Yeah, Brooke. 
Um, they were often made to be victims by both the Union Army and by the um, guerrilla fighters, so they were sort of in between in a way that... And they also made themselves victims, mm -hmm. so that they didn't necessarily carry a lot of the responsibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why would they do that? Um, well, because um, it, like, takes away um, their fault in the... Mm -hmm. um, problems that are being caused. Mm -hmm. So part of their gender role, right? I mean, we talked about uh, the whole ideal of the Southern lady and about kind of uh, the uh, defense of the home front as a very strong part of Confederate male identity. So this moves with that, right? They're sort of, this is expected uh, for them and their gender role to underplay their activities here. And so they've been erased. They're sort of seen as victims only um, of this warfare and not as active participants in the fight. Um, but here you can see, this is, a, this is a photograph of a 1920 reunion of William Quantrill's men. They're holding a, a painting of him because uh, he died. <laughs> um, but here you see, so it's all these you know, older men right here. They're you know, getting pretty ancient uh, by this point. And here at the very top of this triangle is a woman. And the reunion is held at her home. Right? So here she is kind of taking part uh, in a very obvious sort of prominent way um, in not only this kind of uh, reunion of the men uh, of Quantrill's, Quantrill's band, but also in the memory making of it. But this becomes a problem, right? We don't usually think about women as being involved uh, in guerrilla warfare. Oh, wait. There, I'm going to go back to talk a little bit more about this. So women did provide food, clothing. They also provided horses and shelter um, for uh, their men who were engaging in guerrilla activities. And they also provided nursing. Right? So if, since these guerrilla battles took place everywhere, if there was a running battle through someone's yard and someone got injured, the women of the community would come, take that person away, um, hopefully nurse that person back to health, or if not, bury that person, um, if they knew him or not. Right? So they're engaging in um, all of these different ways. Um, they also participated quite directly as combatants. They didn't usually, like Drusilla, go out. Uh, with the men, uh, what they did do is stand on their porches and face Union troops, sometimes with guns, sometimes with axes, um, sometimes with just their words, um, but a lot of times violently. Um, so they took up arms, um, and several historians have sort of noted this and have been kind of combing through the records um, to see how women um, not only engaged in guerrilla warfare outside of the house, but kind of invited it in. Um, and uh, anyone who, who sought to threaten uh, their provisions or burn their houses or threaten their family or themselves, uh, they took action against them violently. But guerrilla warfare really took a, a really heavy toll uh, on the home front, um, especially in these border areas. Missourian Lizzie Brannock wrote in a letter to her brother in January 1864, Our country is desolate, indeed almost entirely a wilderness. 
Robbery is an everyday affair so long as there was anything to take. Our farms are, are, are all burned up, fences gone, crops destroyed. No one escapes the ravages of one party or another. So as I noted before, women also became um, targets as Union armies tried to control guerrilla warfare. Um, For example, in the fall of 1864, Ulysses S. Grant suggested um, to Phil Sheridan, who was in Virginia, that the families of most of Mosby's men are known and can be collected. I think they should be taken and kept as hostages for good conduct. Right, so here again, attacking the family as a way to get the guerrilla man to behave. So women um, were engaging in guerrilla warfare more than we uh, normally think about them uh, as doing so. Also, um, and historians of guerrilla warfare have not talked about Native Americans very much. Um, as I said earlier, most guerrillas were white Confederate men. But it's interesting to think about other groups that use these same kinds of tactics as opportunities um, in order to to gain certain things for their communities in the context of the Civil War. So we talked very briefly a few weeks ago about the Confederate campaign for New Mexico um, in the spring of 1862. In his battle report, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but it's kind of near the end of his report in Confederate... uh, General Henry Sibley, in his arguments for abandoning New Mexico as a Confederate goal, cited the constant threat from Native American raiders. During the last year, he wrote, hundreds of thousands of sheep have been driven off by the Navajos. He had an extreme uh, plan for dealing with this. Indeed, such were the complaints of the people in this respect that I had determined to encourage private enterprises against them. So guerrilla warfare against Native Americans, um, against that tribe and the Apaches, and to legalize the enslaving of them. So here's an unusual situation um, where a Confederate army is combating guerrillas uh, and suggests the enslavement of Native Americans in order to deal with it. Now, you know, again, most Civil War historians don't pay much, to na- pay much attention to Native Americans um, as combatants in the Civil War at all, and certainly not as guerrilla fighters. But as one officer in the Trans-Mississippi West once put it, Indians make the best guerrillas. Now, this is not that surprising, right? Uh, the moment Europeans stepped on American shores, Native Americans resisted their occupation using surprise attacks. Uh, hit-and-run style raids on homesteads, the theft of livestock, and the taking of captives. Um, So these are all very familiar strategies, and in fact, many guerrilla bands named themselves after Native American tribes, forging that link um, between these two cultures. So the desert southwest during the American Civil War, I think we can think of as a Native American home front. So... Native American tribes had been operating in that area for a long time before American military uh, presence there, and they had always been raiding as part of their culture, right? They would raid other tribes. They would increasingly raid uh, Anglo settlers in the 1820s and 30s and 40s. And this was part, this is how they supported themselves and created 
empires for themselves, was in this huge trade network of all of the stuff that they raided, which included horses, it included stock, it included captives. Um, and so when Union and Confederate troops showed up and started fighting each other, Native American groups saw this as an opportunity to acquire more horses, um, oxen and beef cattle in particular, and sometimes also captives. And during the Civil War, Native raiders had the same kind of effect uh, on both Confederate and Union troops in New Mexico and parts of Arizona as they did, as other guerrillas had in other theaters. So this is not solely um, the province, guerrilla warfare, the province of poor white men. Um, New Mexico was a site of raiding almost constantly throughout the war. But the most violent guerrilla theater, and uh, most historians agree about this, was the Missouri-Kansas border, the western Missouri, eastern Kansas. Part of this was due um, to still kind of roiling resentments uh, and this legacy of violence from the 1850s, as we discussed in the first couple weeks of class. Um, Free soil guerrillas, like John Brown, had made repeated raids into Missouri to steal slaves in the mid-1850s. They were referred to as Jayhawkers, these unionist, anti-slavery guerrillas. What also contributed to this um, was the fact that in 1861, most Americans living um, in this area around the Trans-Mississippi West still lived kind of beyond the effective rule of courts and legislatures. They settled their own business. They engaged in um, some feuding. They were not squeamish about implementing vigilante justice. Um, And this fueled a lot of their Civil War activities, um, these sort of private feuds and vendettas. And as I also noted earlier in the semester, you know, Missouri was politically divided. And in that kind of context, guerrilla warfare sort of flourishes, um, and civilians are sort of forced to take sides. On September 23, 1861, uh, the Jayhawker Jim Lane, um, with a small group of men, plundered and torched the border town of Osceola, Uh, Missouri, interestingly named after a Native American chief from Florida. Uh, In response to this, uh, southern men just flocked to Confederate guerrilla bands. So here again we have a cycle starting of strike and response, right? After John C. Fremont's proclamation um, on August 30th, 1861, that established martial law, and the freedom of confiscated slaves, even more Missouri men um, flooded to the Confederate guerrilla ranks, especially along the western border. So here in this slide, you can see the map of the number of um, armed conflicts, like official armed conflicts going on in this area um, along this sort of border between Missouri and Kansas, between Kansas City and Junction City, basically. Um, and from St. Joseph to Coffeyville, north and south. Um, and this doesn't even count the number of, <clears throat> you know, sort of undocumented or poorly documented attacks and raids. Um, in this context, both sides, both Jayhawkers and 
Missouri guerrillas lived off the countryside. Um, so civilians were really in dire straits in this context. So what to do about this? In June of 1863, um, the Union General Thomas Ewing, Jr., was transferred to the command of the District of the Border with the explicit charge that he get a handle on this guerrilla warfare, that he needed to do something um, to get this area under control. So immediately when he arrived, he started um, collecting names of disloyal border residents, mostly women and elderly men. And in the summer of 1863, he began to arrest family members of known guerrillas um, and incarcerated many of them, um, you know, segregated by sex so that the women were in one jail and the men were in another. Now, what do we find out from Leanne White about what happened here? Yes. (laughs) Sorry, he may not be able to get right to you. Go ahead. The women's jail was built shoddily, so it collapsed and mm-hmm. killed many women. Mm-hmm. Including whom? Including the s- two sisters of Bloody Anderson. Mm-hmm. Bloody Bill Anderson killed one of his sisters and maimed the other, right? Um, and what else do we find out from her about that jail? Where was it? Yeah, Terry. Um, it was also the place where... Um, the guy who did the famous painting, that was his house where he had his studio, and it was a loft, and it probably wasn't structured very properly, so mm-hmm. it collapsed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so kind of an interesting connection. Yes, indeed. So Bingham was outraged by what happened, but also most likely felt quite guilty about that, right? Yes, so this prison um, collapsed on August 14th, uh, and in the wake of it, You know, Ewing was, um, you know, sort of apologized and and felt sort of badly, but he kept calling for the arrest of border residents. um, And he, in fact, wrote up General Order Number 10, which preceded General Order Number 11. Um, We also find out about this from Leanne Weitz. So, what did General Order Number 10 do? Or what was it supposed to do? You remember this detail from the article? No, perhaps not. Yeah, Brooke. Um, it says that it authorized the rounding up of the female kin of leading guerrillas and banishing them across Confederate lines. Because mm-hmm. what was that meant to do? It was just for guerrilla women, right? So what was his thought? What was Ewing's thought? Uh, to disconnect the men from their sources of um, sort of like food and clothing and, mm-hmm. and also from their families mm-hmm. who they were fighting for. Mm-hmm. In the hope also... So it takes their supply base away, right? So this is an explicit acknowledgement that women were important, even though they were subsequently erased from these narratives. But he was also sort of hoping that the guerrillas would follow their women into Arkansas, right? And that was a different department, so he would be, they would be someone else's problem at that point, right? Um, 
But before that could go into effect, um, Quantrill, William Clark Quantrill, and, and Bloody Bill Anderson was one of his captains. Um, they were bushwhackers through and through. They were um, devoted to wreaking havoc. Um, on August 21st, guerrilla leader William Quantrill and his band of 400 men uh, rode into Lawrence, Kansas, and killed more than 188 men and burned much of the town. Here's an illustration of the ruins of Lawrence, Kansas, in the wake um, of that uh, particularly large and devastating raid. This was a very spectacular moment. Usually guerrillas did not attack whole towns like this, um, but uh, most Missourians understood this act as an explicit act of revenge for the prison collapse and the presence of Ewing and his sort of anti-guerrilla tactics. Now, Ewing was afraid that this was just going to spiral out of control, that the Jayhawkers were going to respond and it would just destroy not only homesteads but entire towns and communities along the border. So four days later, after the raid on August 25th, um, he issued General Order Number 11, which was much broader than General Order number 10. Um, And it ordered the depopulation of basically three and a half counties. Um, Jackson, um, Vernon, well, Jackson, Cass, Bates, and the northern part of Vernon. Sorry, I have a pointer. So here's the northern part of Vernon down here. Here's Bates County and Cass County and Jackson. It's all south of the Missouri River here. So these were the sort of center of all the guerrilla warfare, and he just said, all right, we're just going to get everyone out of there, right? (laughs) We're just going to remove everyone, which removes both a base of support for Confederate guerrillas and any targets, right, that they might have. We're just going to empty it all out. And this included unionists. Now, unionists could relocate within one mile of army garrisons so that they would have some protection. This is what um, Ewing did for the unionists, but they had to take an oath and they had to kind of certify their unionism with him. There was military enforcement of uh, this order. Union forces swept uh, the counties to enforce it. Burning houses and barns, confiscating food and mules and horses. Um, So you could sort of argue that General Order Number 11 kind of allowed the raiding of these homes um, and the destruction of the homes, uh, created a kind of legitimate partisan uh, band out of Missouri soldiers here. Um, And this whole area became known as the Burnt District. Um, As Jackson County resident Francis Twyman reported, The road from Independence to Lexington was crowded with women and children. Women walked with their babies in their arms, packs on their backs, and four or five children following after them, some crying for bread, some crying to be taken back to their homes. Alas, they knew not that their happy homes were gone. The torch had been applied. Nothing was left to tell the tale but the chimneys. This was an effective order. In 1860, the region had a population of 40,000 people. After General Order Number 11, the population had shrunk to a few thousand Unionists. So it did, in fact, work. It did, in fact, clear out the guerrillas, but they just sort of moved uh, a little bit uh, southeast into central Missouri rather than uh, the western part, so it didn't get rid of them entirely. 
Um, and as you know, um, for both Weitz's uh, article and from looking at Bingham's painting, this prompted an outcry um, in across the South and in some parts of the North. So George Caleb Bingham is kind of an interesting guy. He is from, he was from Missouri. Um, his family was originally from Virginia, but they moved to Missouri uh, when he was seven years old. He was a state politician and a painter of Western genre scenes, which means it was sort of scenes of everyday life um, along the Missouri River and the Mississippi River. He was a unionist and a captain um, on the unionist Missouri home front, so he was um, sort of part of Ewing's uh, troops here, and he was outraged uh, at what he called martial law or general order number 11. So I asked you to look at this painting. This became uh, the most um, popular image um, and the most sort of spectacularly um, effective image to come out of this region um, depicting guerrilla warfare. Um, So what's going on in this? Genre paintings are usually telling a story around groups um, of of figures who are depicted here. Um, So what is the story of Bingham's painting. Yeah, Sally. Um, it looks as if the soldier um, in the middle is putting away this a one? gun. Yeah, um, as if he just shot someone, and I think the body on the bottom left mm-hmm. um, is the man that he just killed. Mm-hmm. And then you see the reaction of the family members or community members around him. Mm-hmm. And what, yeah, here we've got. Whenever you're looking at a painting, right, you're looking at where is the light shining? It's all shining here on the white sort of shirt of this woman. So what are they all, what is everyone's reaction? This man is dead, this woman, either dead or has fainted. So what are all the various reactions of the family members? Well, the people, yeah, the people close to the older man and woman seem to be mourning the death and begging. The woman seems to be begging him not to challenge the soldiers. Mm-hmm. And then there's bystanders that are uh, definitely intrigued. And then another thing that's interesting is far in the background on the right, it looks, mm-hmm. you can here? see the smoke. Oh, so, here, yeah. Yeah, it looks like a, maybe a battle just happened or they, burn, or they raided a town and burned the town. So the countryside is burning, right? You've got multiple fires. You've got at least 10 in the background of this painting. And a lot of families look like they're on the move. They just got displaced. Here's this whole line, right? It kind of moves from the background of the painting all the way through and curves around um, to the right foreground. Yeah. Luke, did you have a... No? Yeah, Jeff. main parts of this painting is you have the the uh, main man in this family of presumably the master of the house of the person who just got killed with all the women around him and he's going to he's trying to get the uh, soldier to stop doing what he's doing and it's a whole portrayal Mm -hmm. of the southern man defending his family and defending the innocent innocent women and innocent people of his family Mm -hmm. yes because these are clearly soldiers right and and this particular soldier right here, what's he in the act of doing? Either taking out or putting away his gun. Yeah. We don't know which one. Yes. Gun or possibly sword also. But definitely threatening, right? 
Like he is threatening this man in particular. This woman has thrown herself across him uh, to protect him. And yes, and then we have the begging woman. Please uh, do not create any more destruction here. Um, Good, yeah. And, and what does Leon Weitz have to say about this painting and the centrality of this figure right here? This older man. She talks about this painting quite a bit at the end of her article. Yeah, Carolyn. Well, she talks about how um, Bingham felt uh, empathy for the women and how he mostly um, felt towards them, but then he makes the central figure a man mm-hmm. and he doesn't show the power that the woman held in the gorilla lifestyle mm-hmm. and that he should have made a portrait of women like going with the supplies and going mm-hmm. to town to do the work for the men. Mm-hmm. Or even if this had been a woman, right? Like, no, right? <laughs> Stop. Because that's what women were actually doing. Yeah, good. So this whole painting, in her view contributes to that victimization narrative. And, that, and this is why um, we have this vision of guerrilla warfare as being so male-dominated and women being the victims of it because of images like this where the center, uh, the center of the conflict here is between Union soldiers and male civilians, male Southern civilians, right? Um, yeah, so who else is in this painting? What other scenes do you note? Yeah, Perry. Like in the house in the top left, you can see them raiding the house. And I think it looks like a carpet that they're dropping off the balcony there. So yep. like just another thing, the gorillas were like raiding the house. Mm-hmm. And there's a wagon back here that they're kind of, it looks like they're offloading everything and putting it in the wagon. Yeah. And, and what, do, what does the Union Army want with a carpet? It's just another thing to take. I mean, maybe, I mean they would cut it up for, and use it for something else, mm-hmm. but I mean... Anything they could use. I mean, they also have, like, contraband and slaves and other people who they're housing, so, like, maybe they would use it for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it doesn't seem like war material, right? No, but they're just kind of looting the house for everything. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes, what else? Yeah, Brooke. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right in the bottom right-hand corner, you also see a black man who looks... I don't know if he's ashamed or, like, he's... Sh- he's Um, hiding his face from everything that's happening and sort of seems to be walking in the other direction. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what that might say about the whole situation, but it sort of creates another dimension with what slaves or freed blacks or those sorts of group might. This is fascinating, right? Like this, this is, this is the most prominent grouping, but this is the second most prominent. It's right here in the right foreground. How do you read this? How do you read it? Yeah. I think it's hard to um, interpret it. I don't know exactly what to say with it, but he obviously seems to be a freedman because he's not, he's not, he doesn't seem to be accounted for. No one seems Mm -hmm. to be watching over him. He's dressed like he has a, you know, a normal free lifestyle, but um, I really don't know what to say about them just being there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of, it seems confusing. Well, he seems to be ashamed, I guess, and to the extent that White says that this was almost, the painting was meant to serve as a political statement to discredit the Union's abuse of civil liberties. I mean, it would be sort of a poignant symbol for the source or the symbolic, um, you know, whatever, genesis of, you know, the Union's supposed uh, moral high ground being ashamed at the actions of their supposed, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah. uh, people who came to their aid. 
Yeah, Southerner, Southerners, and so it's interesting that, that Bingham is a, North, is a kind of unionist Southerner here, um, but Southerners like to uh, argue that the Union Army was, in fact, not emancipationists. And, you know, this is after the Emancipation Proclamation, this whole thing takes place, um, and that, in fact, they were hurting, they were raiding and plundering black homes and slave quarters just as they were white homes. Um, and so, in fact, this sort of undermined all their claims um, to emancipationist kind of moral high ground, um, that this figure would be just as appalled by the actions of the Union soldiers as uh, the white citizens here. What other thoughts? Yeah, Jibay. Yeah, there's also a black woman um, on mm-hmm. the left part of the foreground, and it seems she's like a household servant, and she's holding the fainted probably the grandmother, mm-hmm. and she's looking up to the grandfather, maybe. It, um, I think she's portrayed like a normal member of the family, and it feels like she feels herself belonging to this family, and she's defending her family against the Union soldiers. Mm-hmm. So I guess Bingham was trying to say that maybe slavery is not as horrible as some Northerners have imagined in Missouri or in other border states. Maybe they were just treated as normal members of a family. Or... Again, that this, this figure sort of on the far left kind of combines with these figures on the far right in being this sort of v- part of this victimization narrative too, right? That these, this woman is um, just as harassed and just as hurt as the white women in her midst. Um, and yeah, for, for a unionist, this does seem to be, it seems like a gentler sort of vision of slavery in this area, right? Um, and Missouri was not an area of large plantations like the, the deep southeast, right, or, um, or Alabama, um, or the sugar plantations of Louisiana. It had a, a little different kind of culture, but it was still a slaveholding culture, and it was still a slave state, uh, right? But yes, the, the prominence of these figures in these family groupings is really striking. And in the context of all of this, all of these people on the move, right? They are on the road. They are being evacuated. Um, Are there any final comments on this painting before we go on to the unvanquished? Okay. So this is, uh, you know, one way of imagining um, guerrilla warfare. And fiction is another way of imagining it. Uh, So you read William Faulkner's uh, series of short stories here um, collected as one called The Unvanquished um, for today from the 1930s. Faulkner had grown up uh, in Lafayette County, Mississippi, um, which is the template for his fictional Yachna Patafa. Um, These were, uh, as I noted, seven short stories, uh, initially published serially in the Saturday Evening Post, which is why they have, each chapter has a kind of definitive beginning and end, um, and a sort of wonky chronology. Not really (laughs) sure exactly where they are in the war at any given moment. Um, Union troops entered northern Mississippi in in the spring of 1862 um, into Corinth, right, Uh, which is a town that gets mentioned a couple of times in The Unvanquished, and they operated there sporadically throughout the course of the war. So the residents of northern Mississippi 
we're in a kind of no man's land between two armies. Um, there were some Union troops operating, um, some in occupation. Um, there were vast areas where Confederate guerrillas were in control. Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest and his cavalry kind of harassed Union troops constantly um, through 1862 and 3. And most uh, northern Mississippi residents uh, endured a kind of similar kind of raiding from all sides uh, as not with the intensity of Missouri residents, um, but uh, a a similar kind. So Faulkner, uh, for whom the Civil War um, is a sort of very present fact in most of his fiction, uh, engages with the Civil War in this series of short stories most directly. And these images are from the woodcuts. Um, If you have this version, you have kind of smaller images of this. So they're sort of blown up so you can see um, what these images actually looked like um, in the positive instead of the negative um, image. So, So what did you make of these stories? How does Faulkner depict the Mississippi home front? and guerrilla warfare in particular. Yeah, Ian. Well, I think one thing Faulkner does is he does more so than some of the other pieces depict kind of the strength and the importance of women, where we see with Granny and with Priscilla these, like, strong, independent women who are central to the war process and how Granny is effectively um, Master John's kind of, like, agent on the home front. Master Mm -hmm. John tells her to go to Memphis, and she is going to go to Memphis essentially at any cost and she kind of helps organize everything and keep everything together together. and at the same time she conducts her own sort of economic war against the Union and is an effective fighting force in her own right so Mm -hmm. we see kind of the portrayal as of women as more than just victims and as like kind of active participants in Mm -hmm. the war effort. Yeah, how does Granny sort of inadvertently conducts her own raid on the Union Army, right? And that's the chapter title of that chapter, right, is Raid. Um, how does that come about? Yeah, Carolyn. Um, well, the Union soldiers do take her silver, and they free two of her slaves, and then they take two of her mules, mm-hmm. and she goes after them and demands their, that they're returned. Mm-hmm. And the Union... Um, a Union general signs a form that grants her 100 slaves, 100 mules, and 10 boxes of silver. Mm-hmm. So she gets it back 10 times more, and then she sells the mules back to the Union. Yes. Many times over, right? So she starts this whole... Op- it kind of starts as an accident, where they get this stuff for free, right? Um... But then she creates a little business of selling uh, the mules back to the Union and then going again with forged papers and saying, I'm due this many mules and getting them again and selling them back again. Makes somewhere around $7,000 doing this over the past, after the last two years of the war. Um, But then she pays the price for this. Right? So why does she end up, you know, Ringo at one point says it was, you know, it, was all, it all goes back to that, those first mules we got for free, right? But what actually, I mean, kills her? 
How does her death come about? Is it because she's this strong woman on the home front? Trying to defend her family? Or what goes on there? Snopes snitched on her to the union and she went to go meet him. Mm-hmm. But then it, she ended up walking into a trap placed by Snopes and Grumby and she's killed there. Mm-hmm. So here are your bushwhackers, right? And what is their whole kind of business in the country? What are they up to? Grumby's independence. Yeah. They're just raiding and burning and stealing stuff mm-hmm. on both sides. Yeah. Killing people, right? Yeah, and at the end, you know, one of the guys, Matt, says, you know, we had a good thing here until you killed that, until Grumby killed that, the grandmother, Granny, right? Um, And then that brought them all kinds of trouble, and they were going to have to leave, right? So here's here's your problem where the woman on the home front is running into this problem of a guerrilla band, um, and she can't stand up to them, right? She thinks that they won't kill her. She's like, they won't harm a woman, but they do, right? What else struck you about this novel and Faulkner's depiction of the home front in Mississippi. Yeah, Steve. I think the way that he talked about the slaves who were trying to escape was ridiculous because it, he sort of, like, made it into this, like, deep, deep-seated, like, spiritual exodus that, like, the white characters couldn't understand and the, all the slaves were moving as like a solid mass mm-hmm. towards this, this freedom they thought they could attain but it was eventually hopeless and like they didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I don't know, I, f- I feel like it's kind of offensive not in that he like painted the black characters as like, you know, untrustworthy or bad or unintelligent because mm-hmm. like they're not that. It's just like, He's saying that they have these, like, spiritual motivations that, that can't be understood. And it really can be understood. They're just trying to not be slaves anymore. <laughs> and I, I feel that the fact that he paints them as, as so, like, you know, sort of a sense of being, like, other or different mm-hmm. and, and in that sort of misguided is just... He, he kind of... I feel like it's just kind of a, not, not even a racist view, just an incorrect view. Mm-hmm. So he was not taking into account their agency? Yeah, and, you're, and you're talking about the masses of people moving, Yeah, it was right? more like a romanticized mm-hmm. force than an actual group mm-hmm. of people. And he does describe them as a natural force, right? Yeah. Like waves crashing on the road. What do the rest of you guys think of this? Are Faulkner's depictions of enslaved or fugitive or free African-Americans problematic in your view? Do you agree with Steve or anyone want to argue against? Yeah. Yeah. 
of Master John and of Baird is kind of as like parts of the family and he portrays them as having a relatively good life. Obviously Ringo isn't equal to Baird even if he's kind of described as being a little smarter and having a lot of really positive qualities. He still sleeps on the pallet under the, like the master's son's bed. So there's clearly always that that sense of the gap, but at the same time the slaves like genuinely are part of the family and are not we don't see a lot of instances of unequal treatment so we kind of see that Faulkner doesn't really sympathize as much with the slaves trying to get to freedom because in that sense they're kind of being like unloyal to the family which has treated them well and we see granny being really um frustrated when Lou uh, not Lush? Lush, yeah when Lush tries to um, obtain his freedom because the feeling is kind of that the family has treated them and sheltered them treated them so well and sheltered them for so long that you're kind of being disloyal by not staying around and not continuing to serve the family like in this troubling time so Faulkner is kind of portraying the the like the pro-southern version of slavery that's that's gentler and that's more like patriarchal than the version that you would see in a from say a northern abolitionist and so I think that lends itself to his kind of negative view, portrayal of the slaves who are trying to reach freedom the paternalist that paternalist yeah. argument um, although Lush is an interesting case right because granny thinks although it's hard I, I don't think she actually really thinks this but she says that the Union troops have taken Louche and his wife, Philadelphia, right? But what's the real story? Yeah, Chris. Well, he says that I have to do it because the idea of freedom is more appealing. And then Philadelphia says uh, to Granny, I know it's horrible, I tried to keep him here, but him being my husband, I must go. Which is also really interesting that another example of the females being tied to uh, the males uh, in this. Mm-hmm. But that, that is the reason, right? That he, he just, the idea of freedom, because in, I, uh, reading it, didn't really, he didn't really give one other than that, that it was just his time to go. Mm-hmm. And that and they provided that opportunity yeah. for him. Yeah. Well, and he has been informing on them to the local Union troops, right? So this is why um, Bayard and Ringo sort of spy on him because John Sartoris tells them to keep an eye on Lush, right? Because he knows too much. He knows things. And he knows those things because he has been in contact with the Union Army and then he brings them, when they finally get there, the burning of the house, he shows them where the silver is. Right? So another act of betrayal. Yeah, Claire. I actually saw in the um, painting that we just looked at with the uh, black man in the corner sort of looking away ashamed, mm-hmm. I sort of kind of associated that with Louche, maybe the idea, because mm-hmm. it's sort of the idea that Louche um, essentially like brought the downfall of the family upon them and then just sort of walked away with his freedom and sort of if that was sort of also being evoked in that painting about how he was ashamed that he'd done it 
because he brought all this trouble and death. Yeah. And it's unclear. I mean, Lush does seem to be, he's taking control of his own life, right? Now, what about Ringo? From the first of these stories, it goes from there about 12 to 16 in the course of these stories. So they're boys in the first one. But by the end, by southern sort of standards, they're almost men, right? So what about Ringo? What happens there? Yeah. Well, it seems that he has a shared this very good relationship, this friendship with um, Bayard, mm-hmm. and they attacked the Yankee secretly. Mm-hmm. And also, I think um, Ringo helped the Granny to, each, to force those um, fake issues, fo- fake orders to get those meals. So mm-hmm. we can see that um, he kind of cooperated in this process of home, home front guerrilla mm-hmm. warfare. Yeah, I mean, even beyond that, he takes charge, right? I mean, they sit there for a second, they see the un- as they're going, and they have this sort of accidental raid, and they see this other union group of union troops, and Ringo says to Granny, what do you want to do? You have to decide. And Granny doesn't decide. Ringo decides, right? And she keeps trying to correct him to call Ab Snopes Mr. Snopes. He just won't do it, right? His shift is very interesting here. He becomes kind of the ringleader, although then he aids and abets Bayard in the revenge plot, right, where they all become guerrillas by the end, um, hunting each other, and he's hunting down Granny's murderers. So the cycle of violence continues, right? Um, so I wanted you to read this because this is um, one of the few like really great novelistic depictions of guerrilla warfare um, in this region, even though I think, you know, Steve is right, it has its uh, flaws with its depiction of certain communities, Um, but it does really give you a sense of the chaos um, of this area and how much people on the home front actually knew and didn't know. So when we think about guerrilla warfare as a distinctive kind of warfare experience and civilian experience, um, it helps us to think about another, a number of important issues. So it changes our focus to the border regions, to contested landscapes, so we're not focused so much on battlefields. Um, it also revises our notion of the war as solely a north-south clash um, of huge, massive armies, sort of moves that conflict to other areas, to parts of the Trans-Mississippi West and the Far West. Um, it also shifts our attention um, to the conflation of the home front and the battlefield, to this notion, as Leanne Weitz calls it, of the household war. Um, and this is significant. This is the way that whole groups and communities were brought into the war in a profoundly different way um, in this area. And it helps us to consider um, this sort of interesting contention um, of war as an opportunity. I mean, we talk about war as sort of political action and an act of nationalism and acts of violence, but also thinking about it as an opportunity um, really lets us kind of consider um, how different people use the war to make money, um, to settle old scores, um, and to act on um, desires to really commit violence against other people and property. Okay, so next time we are going to have another thematic uh, class on emancipation. Um, So 
you've got some reading in your source book, and then you also have um, a uh, downloadable uh, link that you'll need to go to to get the forum, the historian's forum on emancipation from the Journal of Civil War History. So I will see you on Thursday. Thanks a lot for listening. If you liked Lectures in History, you can find it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember, Q&A will be right back here with new episodes in September. 